He that can take rest, says Benjamin Franklin, is greater than he that can take cities. Well, I'm not really looking to take anything except a break, because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Heralds of Zion Part 4, Theodore Herzl. Hi folks, it's Rob Mike. Before you get going on this live series, I want to invite you to put your money where your ears are and help make Season 4 happen. You can go right now to my website, www.jewishstory.co, and you'll see a button in the upper right-hand corner there. You can click on it, become a patron, and give a little bit of per-podcast support. Or you can contact me at robmikefoyer at gmail.com, or find me at Facebook at robmikefoyer, and I'll happily share with you the details of how you can support in other ways. If you want to hear that content, which helps you understand past and present, and gives you the inspiration for building the future... Put your money where your ears are right now and help me make Season 4 happen. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L for making this class happen. Uh, you would think with all the times I've spelled that, I would get it straight. But, you know, everybody's allowed one mulligan a day. So, okay. Good morning, everybody. We are in Class 4 of the sort of foundational thinkers of Zionism. Um, what I want to do today, big picture, is we're going to come to Herzl. Um, there were a couple of people when I originally made my statement that we probably weren't going to speak about Herzl. Uh, I got a little bit of pushback from people saying that they didn't actually know so much about him or that there's, you know, so many different versions, so to speak, of his life. So when we use Herzl to lay out, um, the fundamental question I have today is, why is Herzl known as the father of Zionism? I mean, considering everything we've looked at today and, and the story that we'll tell um, sorry, everything we looked up, up till now in the story that we'll tell today, um, it's actually an important question, I think, and there's perhaps some insights into um, the larger picture of this sort of upwelling of Jewish national sentiment, which really occurred at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. So that's, that's our task for today. Um, before we do that, I'm going to start off quickly responding to a question that a couple people wrote to me. Thank you for the feedback. Um, I don't always write back, but I always read it and I try to incorporate what people say into, uh, into my teaching. Um, this to clarify a little bit Leon Pinsker's stance on religion, because I made a couple of statements at the end of class relative to his statements on religion and Kovetzion, which I think were not um, clearly stated because people were confused. Um, and then, once again, just to touch quickly where we've been, and then we'll flow off into the story. So that's where we're going to be. So, so be, to begin, just to answer the line, outline question, um, I had sort of put forward Pinsker as a product of um, the sort of assimilationist, emancipationist solution to the Jewish problem, right? He himself was raised uh, in a, an emancipated household, very deeply Jewish in his identity, but also a lover of Mother Russia. Um, and that tension was, in his eyes, a positive tension, because as we saw, he had this notion that the two calls of history to the Jews of his day were to be... Um, faithful sons to their nation and faithful sons to their motherland, right? And, and yet, I offered this turning point in the storms of the South, these pogroms from like 1871 through 1881, which were a turning point in many respects in Jewish history, um, as a shift. And I want to be careful of um, facile historiography, of, of like this sort of black and white, like he was an assimilationist and then he became a Zionist, and that's not what I'm saying. But there was a shift in his recognition that practically speaking, the solution to the Jewish problem was going to be a national and not an international one. Now, that being said, he himself was not traditionally religious. Nevertheless, the Chovei Tzion movement, which, again, to clarify, 
What, what had happened in around the early 1870s, small groups of Jews began to raise money to buy land in Israel, funded by people like Rothschild, ultimately Montefiore, there were others, we'll, we'll meet Morris Hirsch today in our story. It, but these were small communities, usually on what I would call a colonial model, meaning they went and hired native labor, and they were more in the position of, of um, sort of landholders and household farmers than, than what most people picture when they picture Jewish agriculture is the kibbutz movement. That's the next wave, which was all about Jewish labor, which I think we'll speak about next week. Um, so the Chovave movement began without any connection to Pinsker. It began before he wrote Auto-Emancipation, a few years. But because Auto-Emancipation was the first sort of... Um, well-received tract on the Jewish problem as a, and a practical political solution, he sort of became a leader of the movement. And as we spoke about in 1884 in Katowice in Germany, there was this conference and he was elected head of the movement. And what the, the sort of tension is that most of the settlers, the colonists, the Chobbe Tzion, were religious people. It's important to know that. Places like Rishon Letzion and Petach Tikva, the two, first two set, settlements built in the land of Israel by the modern sort of return of the Jews, were built by religious Jews. Nevertheless, that statement with which Pinsker ended auto-emancipation, help yourselves and God will help you, and this is the place where I think I confuse people, I put it forward to say that the assimilationist element, which he does represent, because really he felt like emancipation and a, and, a, and a liberalization away from the Jewish past was the key to the Jewish future, that assimilationist element within the early Zionist movement will seize upon the first half of health yourselves and, and denigrate the second, and God will help you. Because we have a conflict between political and practical Zionism on one side and religious thought on the other coming up, and we'll touch on that today with Herzl. So that was just so hopefully by way of clarifying um, the confusion that a few people were holding. And if I could see the two people who I know ask that question, if I could see a thumbs up, thumbs down, if I answer, great, fine. So now, now what I would like to do is just briefly touch the, the pieces we've laid so we can see the whole structure and then we'll, we'll sort of put Herzl on top. Remembering that the question is, why do we call Herzl the father of Zionism? We began our discussion with the religious heralds, as it were, tracing all the way back you know, basically as far as exile being the, the uh, sort of uh, driver for redemption. But, but really the personalities we looked at were um, of Alkali and Rav Kalisher. And there we saw that sort of messianism, in the sense that the desire for the end of that unnatural state of exile, and also uh, what a good friend of mine calls progressive restorationism, the sense that, that moving into the future, progress, involves restoring the glories of the past. If you remember, Rav Alkali, I'm sorry, Rav Kalisher in particular, was convinced that redemption depended upon rebuilding or at least beginning these sacrificial offerings again. And that notion of progressive restorationism is a term I give to you. It comes from uh, Ishai Fleischer, my good friend. Um, a, and it's, it is a hallmark of religious Zionism to this day. Right? There's a progressive element to religious Zionism, which may not be so obvious today because it's a fairly conservative movement in general, small c. But it's progressive in the sense that the world that it is, is, is now is not what we want. We want to move forward. But we're moving forward to restore elements of the past. The temple, the, the priesthood, prophecy, fill in the blank, sacrifice. So, 
So that's one side of the whole religious herald, and, and it's one of the things that will cause it to be such a minor, if not downright insignificant element of the, of the uh, Zionist movement in its early days. Remembering, as we'll revisit again today with Herschel, that the vast majority of religious Jews, be they Orthodox or Reform, will oppose Zionism. And we'll speak a little bit about that. But in addition to this progressive restorationism, we also saw the sort of um, emergence within religious thought of natural process as a keystone to redemption. Something which seems obvious to a secular nationalist or a, even a, a socialist, natural process, that's like where they're materialists. They believe in human agency, not divine agency. But it's a radical shift for a religious thinker. Right? And so these two things, the progressive restorationism and natural process as the keystone to redemption, are the hallmarks of the religious elements of Zionism. Just remember, those of you who know more about modern Israeli history, those will stay below the surface really until 1967. And then you'll see how the present-day settlement movement and the whole national religious world is founded on those two no notions. But in terms of, of leadership and providing um, sort of like philosophical guidance, the religious world takes a big old backseat up until 1967. Um, but yes, you're correct. Religious Jews will play a very real role. That's not my point to say the religious didn't get involved. But in a leadership and, a, and, a, and in laying the, the framework for what Zionism is, it's, it's a very small piece. So that was the religious heralds. Then we saw in the person of Moses Hess, this um, sort of um, socialist, or he was really an idealist socialist, quasi-communist. Um, and there the piece I want you to take with you is um, this recognition that the cosmopolitanism, the notice that all of humanity is going to be part of one community, um, and universal revolution, that those things are not going to solve the national problem of the Jews. Right? That was Hess's realization. He's not the only one to come to it, but he was arguably the first one to write about it. Um, and and what, what he produced in his book, Rome and, and Jerusalem, was a new vision of internationalism. Right? This idea that there was a certain element of, of national pragmatism. We Jews just got to deal with our issue just like the Italians. Remember that was his model? He was looking at, at Mazzini and, and, and Garibaldi and the whole movement to unify Italy. We Jews can need to deal with our problem just like the Italians, but that that'll be good for humanity. Very important to remember, he never gives up on the, the international utopianism. It's just a shift from cosmopolitanism, which sees every individual as part of a universal community, to an internationalism, which sees the nation as an intrinsic unit, which can then join in the international community. And that, as we spoke about, is really kind of uh, symptomatic of the paradigms of his day, when nationalism was swiftly becoming the sole legitimate concept, conceptual framework for, for national self-determination. Um, remembering, as Chuck pointed out to us, that a nation state as a political vehicle is not the same as nationalism. And, and, and we're going to see a little bit of that today in, in Herzl's story. Um, the other piece that I want you to bring forward from Hess into our present discussion is that tension between the particular and the universal, which is that cosmopolitanism versus nationalism, which, which as I pointed out to you, is a, is a perennial tension of existence, and that the Zohar says is the primary tension that the soul comes into the world to negotiate, and it is the redemptive tension of existence. Right? And so therefore, the fact that it's there at the base of Zionism, you can see it playing out all around you in Israeli society today, not just Israeli society, I think mean, you can see it in many societies, but we're here talking about Zionism, so, right? Um, that the, you know, and, and you'll get people on both ends, poles, like the extremes, and you'll get everybody in the middle. Um, What's interesting is that, like Rav Kalisher and Rav, um, Rav Alkali, Moshe Hess 
has almost no impact in his day. I mean, they're truly heralds in the sense that they're before their time. Right? For whatever reason, what's happening in Western Europe at this point is the reform movement and rapid assimilation that comes in the wake of emancipation. What's happening in Eastern Europe is the sort of first shoots of the Haskalah, of you know, the, uh, the Eastern European enlighten- Jewish Enlightenment that we spoke about last week. And Zionism, or at least these proto-Zionists, these nationalist movements, are just not catching fire. So last but not least, last week we, talk about, we talked about Pinsker, who if we had the religious herald and the socialist herald, I'll call Pinsker the political herald. Right? He's the one who, like we said, emancipates, the process of emancipation is actually increasing what he calls Judeophobia, which was his own personal term, to what really had already been labeled as anti-Semitism as we know it. Right? And he identified the only solution, remember, and this is critical for what Pinsker adds, is he shifts the focus to the Jewish problem being anti-Semitism. It's not just a political problem where the Jews fit in modern society anymore, because he's coming to a realization that we don't. We don't fit in modern society. The indication of that is the fact that anti-Semitism is rapidly on the rise in the 1880s. It's becoming a legitimate political movement, as we're going to see with Herzl again today. Um, and so therefore, he shifts the focus. Again, he isn't, it's not, I mean, to say that the Jewish problem is a question of where we fit in society and the symptom of it is anti-Semitism, it's fine. But he just focuses on the symptom and that's, don't miss it. As a doctor, we've got a, at least one of them, probably more in the crowd here. You're probably well aware, uh, yeah, well, I see actually two in the same screen. Um, <laughs> the, um, you're probably aware of the dangers of focusing on the symptoms instead of the problem. So, so now, it's true, his focus on anti-Semitism and Judeophobia, as he called it, led him to conclude that the only solution was a return to a normal existence, meaning a national existence. He said that the Jew is like a, like a corpse, like a walking ghost scattered amongst the nations. Right? And so therefore, the nationalist the sort of uh, treatment is the solution to the problem of anti-Semitism. But what it will do is it will lay the assumption at the base of Zionism that all you have to do in order to be a normal people is get home. And if you've ever spent any time in Israel, or, or you read the news, you'll see that, that it takes a lot more than a physical change of place to become a normal people, and the physical change of place has not shifted the world's attitude toward the Jews. Right? That, that um, Israel is now the Jew amongst the nations just as the Jew was the Jew amongst the nations when we were dispersed. And, and that's something that perhaps toward the, at the end of the class we'll put our heads together and try to think about how is that, is it a product of Zionism as much as it's you know, a product of other things? Because Zionism is, of course, like everything else, to some degree a reactionary movement. So that, that's Pinsker, and of course he had that grand vision, as we spoke about, of a mass sort of creating of a joint stockholding company, etc., and moving the Jews out. Remember, as I pointed out to you also, he wasn't necessarily wedded to Zion. Right? He, he, he said, if that works best, though, great. But if it worked along the banks of the Mississippi, you know, that's that image I gave you that just imagine if, if we had reconstituted the national home in Missouri, right? <laughs> what, what the Jewish national life would be like today. Um, and it's an, it's an idea called territorialism, which, which will run in parallel to Zionism for quite some time. And notice it's purely a problem-solving approach. If you remember our original distinction between the sort of visionary messianic element 
and the problem-solving element, territorialism says Zion Shmayan. We need to get out of exile because they're killing us. And if, and if that means Zion, great. If it means Uganda, shkoyach. And if it means Missouri, I'll take that too. Right? And, and um, Pinsker is open to the idea, but because he's deeply embedded in the Eastern European traditional, if not religious culture, it, it, it doesn't fly. People like say, well, we haven't been praying for 2,000 years to go back to Missouri. Right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't capture people's imagination, which is a lot of actually where our story is going to go today. Um, so, Kurtzel, well, last piece is that unlike uh, Alkali and Kalisher and, and Moshe Hess, Pinsker actually has some impact in his day. As we saw, that, that, that by, by the time the first Zionist Congress gets going in 1896, that there are 4,000 members of the Chobavet Zion movement who show up as a block. That's much more significant. Granted, it's a drop in the bucket of European Jewry, but it's a, that's a, a movement of 4,000 members. Heck, I'd be happy. Um, so, so, meaning, we're starting to see... Right, I said that Chobavet Zion elected him, right? They sent these delegates. There were 34 delegates that came to that conference in 1884. But, but, but within, within the 12 years... Between 1884 and 1896, you have 4,000 presumably paying or at least registered members. Um, the, the, so, I didn't say they didn't accept him. Like, her, he was just a, he was a, a limited impact, Pinsker. And so, so the question is, how do we go from a guy who puts out a pamphlet, most of the Jews ignore him, there's a good chunk of them that are, think he's nuts, and then there's a few people who get excited, Pinsker, to Herzl, who suddenly is hailed as king of the Jews. 1879 what, Peter? Oh, 1897. I keep saying 1896 for the conference. I'm sorry. I've, I have that wrong number stuck in my... Yes. The first Zionist Congress, 1897. We'll, we'll, we're going to meet it today. Okay. So you guys ready? But before I go, um, questions or comments, clarifications on that background, and then we're going to just dive into the story of Herzl. And Peter, I'm correct. You meant to write 1897 because I keep saying the, di- the date of the Congress wrong. So, Theodore Herzl. He was born in 1860 um, to a German-speaking family living in the Jewish quarter of Pest, right? That's the kingdom of Hungary, right? Buddha, Pest, that whole thing. And he's, he's right, actually born right next to, to the Dohani Street Synagogue, which was a well-known place in its day. And he's not just born next to it. His grandfather is an Orthodox Jew in every respect. He's from the town of Simun, where he was the Shamish, meaning the Gabai, um, in the Ashkenazi Shul, and we spoke a little bit, if you recall, in the first class about the fact that his grandfather was close to Rav Yehuda Alkali. And it's one of the reasons a lot of scholars believe that Alkali's ideas, which included the sort of pragmatic sort of joint stock vision, which plays an important role in Herzl's thought, may have actually come to him first through the religious world. So anyway, but Herzl is raised in a deeply acculturated home. Now, I say acculturated instead of assimilated because assimilation is a hot-button word. It's a hot-button word today. And it was a hot-button word even in the years following the rise of Zionism. There's an essay by um, the former chancellor of JTS, of the Jewish Theological Seminary, Gershon Cohen. It's called The Blessing of Assimilation in Jewish History. It's worth it. Very provocative in every sense of the word. I'll write it here if you guys want. And in his essay, he defines assimilation as the acceptance on the part of the Jews of non-Jewish cultures, 
languages, and ways of life. Now, you know, you're likely familiar with that classic Midrash that gets um, trotted out periodically about how the reason that the Jews were redeemed from Egypt is because we didn't change our names, we didn't change our clothing, we didn't change our language. So he's pointing out is that actually, throughout Jewish history, that's exactly what we have done, right? And not only that, but he, point, he asserts that it's been a largely positive element in Jewish life from antiquity to the present. It's, it's the mastery of local and world cultures that has allowed the Jews to not only survive, but thrive everywhere from Egypt to Brooklyn, right? And, and so, I mean, perhaps the most powerful example of this, people think of biblical culture as the, as the sort of truly Israelite culture, the so non-assimilated. Who built Solomon's temple? It was a Phoenician architect. Go back and look at the text, right? Meaning the, this idea that assimilation is intrinsically bad, a lot of it has to do with the way things in the late 19th and early 20th century played out between the various sections of the Jewish community, right? And that's Cohen's point. He says that there's an, there was an intra-Jewish war that erupted around the emergence of Zionism in the late 19th century and basically turned assimilation into a stick that other people would hit each other with. Because remember, Zionism, for the first 40 or so years, we'll call it until post-World War II, right, is far from popular amongst the Jews, right? It's rejected by the mainstream exile leadership, right? And most Jews will look at that nationalist project as basically a problem to be avoided and not a solution to the problems they're experiencing. And what they'll, and, and this is when the Zionists begin to pick up on the term assimilation as a stick to beat people with. I'll give you an example. Chaim Weitzman, who I hope people have heard of. He was the first president of the state of Israel. He was a major leader of British Zionism, a statesman, complicated figure. I'm not going to go into his story because it lies beyond our scope, but I hope people have heard of him. He's um, um, uh, a big voice. Listen to his following statement about his own religious education. The head of my school was a Dr. Barnes. A man in his own way was even more bewildering to me than the German Gentiles. He was pious in the extreme of Frankfurt Jewish orthodoxy, but Dr. Barnes was completely assimilated and described himself as a German of the Mosaic persuasion. Now, did you hear that? Weizmann just characterized his teacher as a or strictly orthodox Jew who was completely assimilated. Meaning, in, in the Zionist view, what is assimilation? It's loss of national identity. You know, and, and, and that's going to be a very important plank that gets laid as a foundation for the Zionist movement. Because the inverse is going to be true. If you could be an Orthodox Jew who's assimilated because you've lost your national identity, it means you can be a, a deeply committed Jew who's not assimilated even though you've lost your religious identity that the Zionist definition of assimilation will, will quickly grow into a way in which today, maybe you saw this little tempest in the teacup around the, the Bible contest, the Chidon the, Tanakh, right? That one of, the, one of the moderators made a comment about exile Jewry and everybody got, everybody out there in, in, in exile land got all up in arms. If you didn't see it, you can you know, look it up on the internet. But, but that is symptomatic of a fundamental element of Israeli sort of worldview, which is that, well, by definition, 
Israel is where a Jew not only belongs, but this is where the real Jew is. You might be a religious Jew out there, but you're still assimilated because you're an American, you're a German, you're Argentinian. And that you just saw here in the mouth of Chaim Weizmann. So, so now, you'll, out there in the early, sort of turn of the 20th, late 19th, turn of the 20th century, you're going to have the religious pointing an assimilation, assimilationist figure at the secular, right? They've lost their way. You're going to have the sort of sometimes anti-religious Zionists pointing their finger at the assimilated religious. And basically, everyone's going to be warring with each other. So I'm going to call Herzl acculturated rather than assimilated because the reality is, is we're going to see that his de the depth of his identification with the Jewish people is quite profound. His behavior is not all that Jewish in its day-to-day. -day. Yisrael, you have a, a clarification? Because if, if it's something you want to add, if you could put it into the, uh, the chat, I would appreciate it. But if, you need, if, you, if I've confused you or missed something, I'm happy to, to clarify. The definition of assimilation is the acceptance on the part of the Jews of non-Jewish culture, language, and ways of life. And what you're pointing out is exactly my point, which is that, that the religious will look at the Zionists and say, you're not really Jews because you don't keep Shabbat, etc., etc. You want to build a, a nation of Hebrew-speaking goyim. You understand the distinction? Is that, is that I don't want to spiral off into a discussion of different definitions of, of anti-Semitism. And yes, it's entirely true that we use the term differently today, Shelley. My point is, is, that, is that part of the whole historiography around Herzl is that he was an assimilated Jew who had no identity and he sort of like had this moment of realization. I'm telling you, he was not. He was not. He was raised by an Orthodox grandfather. He, next to the shul, I have here in my notes that his native tongue may have been German and culturally he was German, but, but um, he celebrated his bar mitzvah in the Doheny Street Synagogue and his cousin wrote in, a, in, in, his, in, in later journals that he remembered him reading the Haftorah and the proper Nusach, right? I'm, I'm sorry you cannot call someone assimilated in the sense of loss of their culture if they can read the Haftorah properly. I mean, that's not the only standard. But he was totally acculturated. He saw himself as, as aspiring to the heights of Viennese, in particular, ultimately Viennese, but German culture. Israel, your hand's still up, so I don't know if you're just being patient or if you've forgotten it's there. Okay, okay. Um, I don't know how to put it down. So you can just smile. Um, the, okay, so, so Herzl went to the primary school, Jewish primary school, um, up until 10, but he moved on afterwards to the real shul. It was um, a high school that was considered innovative in its time because it placed its emphasis on studying modern subjects rather than the classics. And that's the, the era we're in right now, is everything is all about the new, right? That's the hallmark of modernist culture. And it was really at the real shul that Herzl recorded his first experience of something which bound him to his people other than the family and social fabric. And that was, of course, anti-Semitism. So one of his teachers was explaining the meaning of the word heathens. And he said, among these are the idolaters, the Mohammedans, and the Jews. And let's just keep that as a reminder that the emancipated European culture toward which the Jews of Western Europe strived and aspired was still really a Christian culture. It was just a Christian culture that had been secularized, but it had not lost its attitude toward the Jews, right? Um, so that experience of anti-Semitism and being an outsider despite his mastery of culture stuck with Herzl all the way through his higher education at the University of Vienna. He joined the Albia, which is a, a fraternity associated with the Nationalist, Le Nationalist League of German students. And if you don't know what that is, you can just hear their motto, honor, freedom, fatherland. That kind of says it all. 
right? But he joined. His brother's name in the name gave him the secret name of Tancred, which is the crusader hero, right? Who was the conqueror of, of, of Jerusalem. Um, and it was here at the University of Vienna, while he was studying law, that he first encountered a book that began to awaken him to the problems of the society that he had adopted. There's a book by um, Eugene Doring, right, called The Jewish Problem as a Problem of Race, Morals, and Culture. Now, Doring was a German philosopher. He was a professor at the University of Berlin, which means he was at the height of not only German culture, but of authority. And a, pro a professor of philosophy at a German university in the late 19th century was a pillar of society. Right? And, and during, and notice the, the book is about Jewish problem as a problem of race, morals, and culture. It is no longer religion and economics. And it's important to hear that. The, the medieval model of Jews as economic competitors and Christ killers is being replaced by Jews as a, a, um, a, a foreign element. Not just a foreign element, but as a, um, there's a word which I'm lacking in my mind now, um, something which spoils the purity of the mix, right? The, the, and, and so he says, During says in the book, um, he calls the Jews the most vicious minting of the entire Semitic race, and he comes to the conclusion in the book that the solution to the Jewish problem is the elimination of the false tolerance of the Jews, right? This is very important in terms of where Germany is going to go. He says, human sorry, humane reciprocity will consist in living in peace, I mean tolerance, insofar as the nobler humanity comes together in the good. Right? Um, for the rest, however, precisely battle and destruction will emerge so much more energetically against the inhuman. What he just said to you is that tolerance is something you give to human beings. And when all human beings band together and tolerate each other, then they will actually wage merciless war on the, I hear you guys saying, the, 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 the sort of uh, indigestible element, the, um, the stain. There's a word which is like right here on my brain. But you get the point. The part that, that is spoiling the mix. And in his diary, Herzl records his horror when he encounters an idea not on the fringes of society, but amongst the intellectual elite. And he writes in his diary that when such infamous stupidities are presented in so direct a fashion, I mean, Durin wasn't pulling any punches there, when a cultivated and penetrating mind like Durings, he recognized his greatness intellectually, with his encyclopedic knowledge can produce such rubbish, what can one expect from the unlettered masses? Now this is the earliest reference we have of Herzl starting to wake up to the fact that life might be good so long as it's good. And he's there at the University of Vienna, and as we'll see momentarily, goes on to continue to sort of ride the heights of Viennese culture. But, but if you have a, a cultural pillar of the highest intellectual caliber calling the Jews non-human? What about the masses who are inheriting still the hatred of the Middle Ages? So he get, it, this is also the point, it seems, where Herzl began to contemplate that there might be a disaster, a catastrophe, brewing for the Jews of Europe. And, and this is, by the way, one of the um, beginnings of the answer to our question. Remember, the driving question for this class is, how is it that Herzl is remembered as the father of Zionism? One of the answers is he's one of the first people to really begin to sense and speak about a brewing catastrophe for the Jews, which will paint him, obviously, retroactively, in a role of prophet. And 
either today or, or next week, depending on how the flow goes, we'll meet Max Nordau, who was a very important compatriot of Herzl's, who, who wrote explicitly about what he began to see, the catastrophe brewing for the Jews, not as a sidelight of European history, but as a direct product of where European history was going altogether. So, so most of his contemporaries, Herzl's contemporaries, right? Even though, um, yeah, I see, I see someone asked me this question here. It's actually worth pausing. I see from, uh, that on Google, it calls Herzl a secular journalist who knew nothing about the Jewish religion. And, and, and this is what I warned you about. Facile historiography. You are correct. It's not just Google. You will find whole books. You will find a, a main line of Zionist education which will present to you, just like with Pinsker, Herzl was once upon a time a totally assimilated, identityless Jew who saw the Dreyfus Affair, which we'll speak about if you don't know what it is, woke up and suddenly became the leader of Jewish nationalism. Bunk. It's bunk. And when you see something which is so patently false and does not stand up to the historical record, the next question you have to ask is, who does it serve to present it so? And that's perhaps what we'll get to at the end. But, but, but I just want you to know, the reason I'm building this image of Herzl as acculturated but not assimilated, as a person who senses not only what's happening for the Jews in the big picture, but his own identification with that, we'll see where the turning point lies. So, so um, in terms of that turning point, it really, perhaps the first experience he had was in 1883. He's in university. His fraternity, as we mentioned, this uh, sort of German nationalist fraternity, held an evening in the memory of the recently deceased composer Richard Wagner, who, of course, at this point had not become the sort of theme song of the Nazi party because it's only 1883, right? But one of the leaders of the fraternity took the opportunity of this commemoration to speak out violently against the Jews, and it became actually an anti-Semitic rally. Now, you have to understand that in, in, in the German states, in the major cities, also in France, that political anti-Semitism has come into being, right? Um, the, the idea that, that um, you could organize people's political energy around the identification of the Jews as the primary problem facing society is on the rise. And that, remember, we are 60 years at this point before the Nazi party. Well, 50, you know, 50 years. But, but still, it's important to note that, that they came out... As someone pointed out here in the, in the notes, um, that Vienna was a case study in what was brewing at this point. And yes, he was right there to see it. Um, so Herzl is the only person in his whole fraternity who resigns in protest. Even the Jews, he wasn't the only Jew, even the Jews let it go. Only Herzl, and I, and I give this to you as another piece of the character, which is that there was something in Herzl that wouldn't let him rest. There were many Jews who saw what was brewing in Vienna. There were many Jews who experienced anti-Semitism despite how acculturated and elite they were. There was something in Herzl that wouldn't let him rest. This is a question I have to tell you. It's a, quite a sort of driving personal question for me. My grandfather, Alva Shalom, escaped from Europe in 1937. He stowed away on a boat, told his parents goodbye. No money, literally snuck on, hid in the uh, hold. And I often wonder, like, why? So many Jews. He wasn't didn't privy to some startling information. He didn't have some insider track on what was coming any more than anybody else. There was just something in his personality that said, nope, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting out. 
And this is what I want you to hold on to with Herzl. Another piece of the answer, aside from this sense he had of brewing catastrophe, was it would not let him rest. He must act. Okay, so nevertheless, he, despite his, his experiences of anti-Semitism and his sense that something's wrong, sort of in the, in the idyllic world in which he's found such a high level, he, he doesn't give up on German culture or the states, the city-states, etc., that embody it. And after graduating with his degree in law, he tries to find service in the public service in Vienna and Salzburg. It comes clear that, that a career path at court is very limited for a Jew, and so he turns, as did so many other young Jews of his day, and we saw with Moshe Hess, to journalism, right? He, um, he managed to land a job with a very sort of prestigious Vienna paper, the New Free Press, which I'm not even going to bother to try to say in German, although Peter, if you want to help us out, you can. I think it's Neu, Neu Free Press, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm not going to mangle another language, but he, this, it's a, the key is that he becomes his, the Paris correspondent for this prestigious Vienna paper. He's at the height of European culture in his day. And not only that, he's a competent journalist, but he suddenly gains fame as an author of a certain short literary sketch form, Fueletan. I, 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 I'll write it. Are you, gonna, you wanna say it, Pamela? Will you say it for us? No? Uh, I'll write it so that people can, can see it um, rather than mangle it. One second. Uh, and, now, and when you see it written, you'll understand why I can't actually say it. Um, the, but um, it's a short literary sketch on art, culture, basically anything which is talk of the town. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interest piece, and he apparently mastered the, uh, the medium, and it became uh, sort of well-known in the cultural elite circles of Paris and Vienna because of that. And it was in his capacity as the correspondent for the New Free Press, as the Paris correspondent for the Vienna-based New Free Press, that Herzl covered the Dreyfus trial. There is a record in his journal of a crazy idea of trying, of proposing to the Pope a mass conversion. Meaning, meaning there are elements in his writings that show that he wanted to solve the problem of anti-Semitism any way he could. And, and you are correct that, that, that there was a part of him that would have been willing to sacrifice the particular attachment to Judaism. In the end, he turned away from that Likely for two reasons. One, it was completely impractical. Actually, three, impractical. Unlikely to work, meaning because the racial element of anti-Semitism in the modern era makes, as you know, conversion, emancipation, assimilation, it doesn't solve the problem. It actually makes it worse because suddenly the Jew is hidden in the mix. And the third is that he actually did have a deep attachment to his Jewish identity. But you are correct. He was plagued. And, I would, and that gets trotted out periodically. I'm sure you've seen it in memes. Especially in the religious world, they like to trot out, well, actually, Herzl was actually in, in, interested in mass conversion. No, Herzl was interested in saving the Jews. And it, it would not let him rest. And it's true he, would will, he was willing to sacrifice Torah potentially for it because that wasn't who he was. But that was definitely not his driving force. Okay, other questions or, or comments? Certainly German, French, um, I, I, beyond that, I don't know. I don't know, there's someone uh, saying another one. Pamela, what other one? But you're, you're muted, I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, of course, Hungarian, yes. Thank you, it was from Pest. Good point. Um, okay, so on to the Dreyfus trial, yeah? Now, the Dreyfus trial is, you should know, a huge parsha unto itself in European history. We're not going to go there. I just want you to appreciate the fact that 
that um, for various reasons that lay beyond the, the bounds of our story, um, the Dreyfus trial became a point of conflict between conservative and liberal elements within European society that had little to do with the anti-Semitic side of the Dreyfus trial that we're probably more familiar with. And so I tell you that because I want you to appreciate that this is not some tempest in the teacup that Herzl happens to witness that just has a personal impact. This is a trial which is shaking Europe. So what is the Dreyfus trial? Right? Um, you know, the... Back up, because I'm looking at my notes. I had a different introduction. But, um... So, here it is. So, Captain Alfred Dreyfus was a young French officer of Jewish descent. Now, I say French officer of Jewish descent because in, in 1894, he's convicted of spying on the behalf of the Germans. A little bit of context, first of all. Um, yes, he's from Alsace, right? The... the, um, the Germans and the French, right, Germany came into being as a nation-state through the process of the Franco-Prussian War, right, in 1870, 1871. So, like, the Germans and the French, their national identities are, are almost, by definition, in conflict. So he is being accused of treason with the ultimate enemy, number one. Number two, 1894, he's of Jewish descent, because the Jews of France, which we never spoke about in the semester course, we didn't get there, we jumped ahead, were emancipated, were given full civil emancipation in 1791. That's a little bit more than 100 years ago at this point. And they weren't just given full civil emancipation, they, he, Dreyfus comes from a family which took that ball and really ran with it. That's why he is actually part of the general staff of the French army at this point. And there are all kinds of questions about whether he even saw himself as a Jew. But bottom line, he's convicted in 1894 of spying on behalf of the Germans. He's initially condemned to life imprisonment on Devil's Island, right? Um, but his, 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 his first conviction begins a whole saga of false accusations, trials of the other person who it turns out perhaps was the real spy. He's reconvicted and he's ultimately exonerated in 1906, you should just know. But that's 12 years later. And, and, and his, his trial was so sweepingly public that that's why they call it the Dreyfus Affair. It's not just a trial any longer. right? Just to sort of like touch that very famous moment that a lot of people are familiar with, um, sort of like the, the world-famous writer and journalist Emile Zola publishes a, a sort of an angry open letter in a Paris new, newspaper which detailed the whole case, both the fact and the fiction, and its title was J'accuse, like I accuse. His whole point was that there was a deep dishonesty and anti-Semitism which was driving this process, and that it was indicating a failure of modernity. Because, because for the idealists, for the liberals, modernity was supposed to represent impartial justice, universal citizenship. We were supposed to have left the darkness of the anti-Semitic Middle Ages behind. Right, um, And it's really not an exaggeration to say that for an almost a decade, France was split between what are the liberals, who were the, called the Dreyfusards, which is an unfortunate name, right, who maintained his innocence and therefore accused the government of all these sort of retrograde medieval perspectives, and the conservative reactionary anti-Dreyfusards, who not only um, maintained that he was guilty as a spy and a traitor, but many explicitly hated him, hated him as a lying Jew. 
Right? So on the other side of, of Zola in this public battle was uh, Edouard Drummond. He was a publisher of a viciously anti-Semitic newspaper called La, La, Libre, La Libre Parole. And he was one reading, leading the charge against the Jews, not only in the Dreyfus Affair, but in France of his day. He'd written a book called Jewish France. It was a two-volume work. Right? It, it published about 10 years before the Dreyfus Affair. It sold 100,000 copies. And it was a prolonged analysis about how the Jews were ruining France. And he gave a three-part formulation to his accusation against the Jews, which basically sum up European history. And it's important for us because you can understand this is the environment that, as a correspondent for the Vienna paper in Paris, this is the environment in which Herzl had been living for that whole decade. It's important. The Dreyfus Affair didn't drop on Herzl from the moon. He didn't suddenly wake up and realize the French hate us. That book sold 100,000 copies. It's a guarantee that as a correspondent for a major newspaper, he had, if not read it, because two volumes of anti-Semitic you know, vomit is a little bit much to wade through, but I'm sure that he'd taken a look. So, so what are the three elements that... Um, oh, you guys probably want his name. Um, Edouard Drummond. Hang on. I know that looks like it's spelled wrong, but that's how I have it in my, no in my notes. Um, no, it should have been an A after the U. Sorry. Um, Ed Edouard. Um, someone can correct it. So what are these three elements of Drummond's vision of how the Jews are ruining the country? Because they're going to teach us a lot about how anti-Semitism, the form it has taken in his day. Number one, racial. Right? This is, we've seen from, from Eugene During and also um, Wilhelm Marr that we mentioned before, right? That, um, that he sees an absolute opposition between the Aryans and the Jewish Semites. And again, that's a language that the Nazis did not invent. It was a language that was a product of the sort of racial theory which was gaining much ground in many places at the end of the 19th century. So that's, the, the first is racial. The second is financial. Well, we know this story. Drummond is arguing that the finance and capitalism are controlled by Jews and that they're sucking Europe dry. And this is that place where the socialist vision saw the Jews as the evil capitalists. Right? Now remember that the capitalist vision also saw the Jews as the dangerous socialists. Because remember, Moshe Hess was one of the founding socialist thinkers. But Dramont's number one, racial, which is, of course, you can't get rid of. Because a race can only be destroyed, can't be changed in his mind. Number two, it's financial, which means that, that, that there's a structural battle against capitalism and the Jew. Third is good old-fashioned religion. Right? He blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus. He was a Christian. And as a conservative, was worried about modernity and the loss of religion in Europe in general. So, um, and by the way, just as a proof that Herzl, that wasn't such a wake-up call, the Dreyfus trial, two years before the Dreyfus trial, Herzl published a piece on the anti-Semitic demonstrations in France. His piece was called Anti-Semitic France. And he described the willingness of the citizens of what he called the most enlightened nation in Europe to openly declare themselves as haters of the Jews. Now, all this being said, Herzl, in his initial dispatch for the New Free Press, at his first coverage of the trial, did not question Dreyfus's guilt. He just assumed, right? And, and this is another hallmark of modernity. Well, the government doesn't lie. Therefore, there's a trial, there are judges, there are lawyers. The accusation must be true. It was only over the coming months when the complexity of the affair started to get unearthed in the press, that his thinking started to shift. And then 
in January 1895, when Dreyfus was publicly disgraced at the end of his first trial, right, um, he was so moved by what he called the captain's dignified bearing that he began to shift. And he says, in his, as he wrote in an article in January of 1895, a Jew, an officer of the general staff, and headed for an honorable career, would not commit such a crime. So I don't think that the Dreyfus Affair can be labeled as it often is, as the wake-up, the beginning of, Jewish, of Herzl's Jewish identity. But what is clear, as Herzl himself maintained later in his life, that this was an unconscious turning point for him in his recognition that um, something simply needed to be done. That there, was, that there was no way that the Jews could stay in the world in which they lived. So there's another piece in here that happened in that same year, which I think perhaps needs to be mentioned. So we said that you know, the, the trial starts in 1894. In that same year, Herzl publishes one of his first major literary works. It's called The New Ghetto. It, it's, it's a play which is basically a cry of despair over the impossibility of European Jews ever really being free within Europe. And he didn't know it, but he began it the day that Dreyfus was arrested. Right? And he finished it two weeks before he was convicted. So remember, he begins this play when he doesn't even know that Dreyfus is, is happening. He's writing it, most of it, in the beginning he believes that Dreyfus was guilty because he was accused by a fair court. But as he's writing the play and experiencing the Dreyfus affair, he comes to the conclusion that Dreyfus is actually wrongfully convicted and is hated as a Jew. And therefore, the, the play The New Ghetto, um, in many ways, is a, a psychological articulation of Herzl's experience during the Dreyfus affair, which is why I think it's worth knowing about. Um, so it's called The New Ghetto. And basically what happens is in 1894, he's on his way home um, from a meeting the fact where he had been trying to explain to the art critic of the new free press right, what the rational basis for anti-Semitism was. And he, this was an obsession for him. He, try, he was trying to understand how, why does the world hate us. And on the way home from such a meeting, he gets accosted by two young men who call him Saud, right, a Jewish pig or dirty Jew. And he writes in his journals later that um, that disturbing incident actually brought his thoughts to a boil. And it's interesting he uses that that language to a boil. Because like I said to you, I want you to picture Herzl as constantly brooding over the personal and the national question. But because he's saturated in the good life, he's not yet forced to act. Right? But this somehow brought his thoughts to a boil. And he says after three weeks of work in a state of feverish exaltation, right, that he finishes the first draft um, of, of the new ghetto. And basically he says the whole theme of the play is that the Jews have emerged from the physical walls of the ghetto only to be trapped in the perception that they're an alien, unwelcome element in European society. And the original version of the play ends actually in absolute despair. The young protagonist is a Jewish lawyer named Jacob Samuel. He lay, he's dying on stage at the end of the play. It's a classic, you know, like dark European, right? right? Why is he dying? Because he's just been wounded in a duel that he provoked in an attempt to save his honor with a conflict, in a conflict with a non-Jew, right? And then he's laying there dying on stage. Wait, did I lose you guys? Oh, it's the, the dramatic moment. The protagonist is a young Jewish lawyer who has provoked a duel 
with a non-Jew in an attempt to save his own honor, and he gets shot. And the end of the play is this young man lying on the stage dying, and he cries out to the audience, Oh Jews, oh my brethren, they won't let you live again until you learn how to die. I want to get out, out of the ghetto. And then he dies. You know, and, and, and in many ways, this exemplifies Herzl's realization through the process of the um, Dreyfus trial. So that he may have considered, like Pinsker, that, it, that a, a more real emancipation or reformation of European society, that that would set us free. But now, or even the, like, like you pointed out, Israel, even the radical move of conversion. But now when he recognizes the nature of modern anti-Semitism, how it looks at the Jew as an indelible, indigestible, unchangeable sort of like dross in the purity of European culture, then he realizes actually the only thing to do is to get out. Um, and so that feverish state that he describes is also um, another element. And by the way, it is, I think, also an, another part of our answer to how it is that Herzl becomes the, uh, the, considered to be the, the father of, of modern Zionism, which is that he had a creative capacity that the others who came before him did not have. Right? And, and part of that was this ability to be completely consumed by his ideas. And as we'll see shortly, even someone as, um, let's say, uh, detached or at least in troubled relationship with his Jewish identity as Freud saw Herzl as an almost messianic figure. So, okay, so the next big... Okay, I'll pause there, maybe, for, for questions for clarification. And then I want to talk about the Jewish state and the... Uh, and the um, First Zionist Congress. The idea of the Jews sort of slowly returning to the land of Israel, right, or colonizing Palestine, as it was said at the time, right, that idea, as we've seen already, is not new. The idea of gradual settlement of the land of Israel was not new. But we saw it with Pinsker, we saw it with the Chobo Beit Zion. We, we didn't speak about it, but there are even larger sort of colonizing societies at the time that are looking to go to Argentina or, you know, places in, in Russia. They, they're not part of our story right now, but this idea of, of needing to move the Jews around is not Herzl's innovation. He doesn't even invent the word Zionism, by the way. That's not his product. It was uh, Nathan Birnbaum, right? That, that's what I have in my notes. Coined the term in the 1890s, right? The, the power... I think that really transforms Herzl into the father of Zionism really is, is um, summed up in these quotes that he has in his journal from June 1895. So at this point, it's after the Dreyfus Affair, it's after the publication of his, his book, The New Ghetto. And what does he say? He says, as the years went on, the Jewish question bored into me and gnawed at me, tormented me and made me miserable. And I was led to the conclusion that I have no time to lose. More than anything else, it bothered him, and he would not let him rest. Now, he, as a writer, was determined to do something written. And so he sat down to write. He thought the product was be, would be a novel, right? Um, and maybe, like, the new ghetto simply wasn't enough. And he needed to write something bigger. Novel is always attractive, right? But what actually came out when he sat to write was a letter. It was a letter to Maurice Hirsch, Baron Maurice Hirsch, who at the time was a well-known Jewish philanthropist. 
He was one of the world's wealthiest people in his day. He'd been very involved in the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad in, in Russia of its day. Um, and he was using his money to resettle Jews, persecuted Jews in Tsarist Russia. So he was open to the idea of resettling, resettling them in different places within Russia. Just trying to get them basically out of town. Right? Um, ah, I see that this it is still unstable here. You guys can hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, so, so Herzl wrote a letter to Hirsch knowing that Hirsch was interested in humanitarian solutions and they, the two men met at, at Baron de Hirsch's Paris mansion and um, Herzl described it in detail in his diary, which is one of the big benefits we have is having his diaries. Um, he said he, upon entering, he announced to this host that um, he needed just an hour of his time and he started by critiquing this sort of piecemeal resettlement program and they proposed that they turn to the Kaiser, the, the Kaiser of Germany, with the idea of, of incorporating a billion mark Jewish national loan fund in order to move the Jews en masse back to the land of Israel, back to Palestine. And it was that point that Hirsch looked at him and said, you are delusional. Get out of my house. Right? And I want you to take this out. Why am I telling you this? First of all, it's a funny story. Second of all, because, because this is the reality that Herzl will encounter again and again. People, he will be consumed by his ideas. He will propose the most absurd. Imagine going to one of the richest men in the world and saying, hey, join me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist, but I'm nobody in, on your social set. And we'll go to the head of Germany and propose that we're going to gather a billion dollars for a joint stock company to move the Jewish people from all over the world into Turkish territory. Ottoman, sorry. I'm like, what? what? But nevertheless, Herzl doesn't give up. And he was going to put his, in, his energy into writing now because he felt like he was unable to explain to Baron Hirsch what it was that he wanted. And the next address was, of course, the Rothschilds, the other major Jewish banking family of European fame. And he writes a small pamphlet, which was essentially addressed to the Rothschilds, but was written in a way in which hopefully it would be accessible to the masses, which was known as the Jewish state, the Judenstadt. Right? I want to say right now that if you have not read The Jewish State, it is a must-read. It's a very short, it's not a big investment of time. I'm willing to bet you could pull it off the internet on PDF. You probably don't even have to find it. Um, but it is, it is worth reading. Um, be, well, I'll, we'll see why. Uh, so, but I, really, I highly encourage everybody to read it. The, opening, the original title was a proposal for a modern solution to the Jewish question. And that modern piece is very big because in Herzl's mind, modern is no longer piecemeal. Right? What he wants is for the Jews to seize territory on the world stage. Okay, I see Peter just said it's on Amazon for free. Great, or at least in German. <laughs> That's not going to help me. Um, the, uh, the, um, the key of this book is no more infiltration trickling into the land of Israel through the colonial model. No more gradual purchase of an of a, a acre here and a, and, a, and a farm there. That what needs to happen is the Jews need to form a unified organization, which can then speak on their behalf to the world powers and negotiate what he calls the return of their stolen patrimony. Now, this is very important because, it, it, first of all, it's what is called political Zionism. So if you should just know, like if you're going to give something a title, um, the... 
the movement that Herzl starts is political Zionism. Why is it called that? Because it sees the solution to the Jewish problem as a political solution. And in the turn of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th, politics were world politics. You had world empires, which were carving up Africa, what was called the race for Africa, what happened in the late 1880s, right? And Asia had already gone through colonization. Gosh, South America had been colonized and already liberated itself. Meaning the idea of turning to the world powers and saying, we want a chunk of land, was far from insane. And that's one piece. The other piece is it's an assertion of a return of our patrimony. We're not asking for a gift. We're asking the powers of the world, says Herzl, to use their capacity to give back what was ours to begin with. Right? And in return, as he lines out, um, is going to be a bastion of European culture within the Middle East. Like Avram said in the notes there, um, that, that the language of the Jewish state is going to be German. Herzl, for sure, and, and maybe if we talk about Alt-Neuland before the end, you'll see even more of that. But for now, the opening line of, of this pamphlet, again, published in 1896, so it's, it's, you know, it's, we're only moved a year forward in our story, um, the idea which I have developed in this pamphlet is a very old one. It is the restoration of the Jewish state. Let the sovereignty be granted us over a portion of the globe large enough to satisfy the rightful requirements of a nation, the rest we shall manage for ourselves. Right? And, and like I said, he goes on to point out that in his day, the creation of a new state is hardly ridiculous or, or even impossible. Right? Um, and so the question, of course, rises, if this is such an old problem, why now? But you've already gotten the answer. You know why now. Herzl's answer was very clear. Right? Um, that, that everything depends on the propelling force, he says. What's that force? The misery of the Jews. And a good chunk of the Jewish state is devoted to describing that misery and the anti-Semitism which is causing it. Now, it's also important to note this is not a utopian manifesto. It's the first draft of an action plan. Right? And when you read it, some of the things that, um, that are worth paying attention is notice how he, he, he subsumes the needs of the individual to those of society in that sort of tension between the particular to the universal. Right? Um, the... The second piece is his negative view of democracy as a form of government, right? Because he wanted the, the ability to wield power. Esther, are you raising your hand? I, I, I see something. No, no? Sorry. Um, okay. So, so, as we said, so the, the Jewish state, unlike, um, the Jewish state, unlike, uh, uh, so we have a question here. Surely if you realize that this land was ours to go back to, it couldn't be considered non-religious. Well, no. I mean, whether, whether you look at the land of Israel as ours to go back to or not, I think it has anything to do with religion. It has to do with a national view, because there are plenty of religious Jews who don't see us as empowered to go back to the state. Right? But that, I think, is a, the, the question that we're going to get to next week. The topic for next week is going to be the new Jew and that whole conflict that lies there. But, so Herzl publishes the Jewish state, like I said, in, in 1896, it, unlike Pinsker's auto-emancipation, it actually gets significant circulation. Um, so much so that this new idea of Zionism that he puts forward in, in the pamphlet is successful in uniting orthodoxy and the reform movement in a way in which nothing had done for almost 100 years in their opposition. Right? He stirs such heated anger that, that the label that's put on him is a false messiah. And we spoke last semester at length about Shabtai Tzvi. 
And here we can see the last sort of shockwaves of, of the fear of messianism that Shabbatai Svi left within European Jewish culture, that, that Herzl is painted as a modern or you know, present day Shabtai Tzvi. Um, but he was under no illusion that he himself was a messianic figure, right? He was simply consumed by an idea. He says, no human being is wealthy or powerful enough to transplant a nation from one habitation to another. An idea alone can achieve that. And this idea of a state may have the requisite power to do so. Right? Next year in Jerusalem is our old phrase, he says, it's now a question of showing that the dream can be ver- converted into a reality. Now notice, this is what I said, that Herzl manages to trigger the imagination of the Jewish people. And it's a slow process. There's far more resistance, either because they call him a false messiah, or they think it's a pipe dream and it's impossibility. There's far more resistance to Herzl than there is support. Also, there's argumentation, the, the old sort of demographic argument, right? How many Jews are really going to go back? How many Arabs are living there now? If you're familiar with Simon Dobnow, famous Jewish historian Russian, of Russian uh, uh, nationality, who was an advocate for national autonomy within the Russian Empire, that the Jews should stay where they are but have more self-rule, he argues that, listen to the math, even if a thousand Jews a year moved to Palestine, which he felt was absurdly high, right? The number would only reach a half a million by the year 2000. That itself leaves the problems of the majority of Jews undealt with. Now, that's good math. But I want you to know that, that um, it's worth thinking about the fact that the professors of statistics at the Hebrew University made the exact same argument to Ben-Gurion against declaring independence. They said, we'll never last. There are 600,000 Jews, right? And even if they all come at this following rate, etc. You know, just remember, now about 72 years later, we're, there's, there's 8 million. Right? So, so this is it. Herzl was consumed by an idea. Right? Um, it caught his imagination, and because he allowed himself to be consumed by it, it caught the imaginations of others. And, and through that, he was able to actually create a movement. Because within less than a year after the publication of the... Um, well, no, it's a little bit more than a year. I'm sorry. A little bit more than a year after the publication of the Jewish State, Herschel actually convenes in Basel, Switzerland, on August 29th of 1897, the first Zionist Congress. And this finally, Barbara, I asked you to wait right at the beginning of class, but I, I made it. I also took to heart your point. I want to not rush the end of this. Um, so within a year of the publication of the Jewish State, he's able to pull together, um, I have the numbers here, that, that um, basically almost 200 delegates representing 17 countries, right? Every type of European Jew, Orthodox, Reform, Assimilationist, Nationalist, East, West, which itself is a huge accomplishment. I mean, you know the Jews. Getting different types of Jews in one room is not a simple task. Almost half that came were already a member of some existing Zionist society like the Chovei Tzion that we described. And there were others, like I told you. They were sprouting up like mushrooms right now, which again, remember, Herschel doesn't create the idea. He doesn't even really become its sort of political master. He fires the imagination. That's his great power. He was also good with the pen, which doesn't hurt. But so he draws together at this first Zionist Congress, again, in the end of August, 1897. It was in Switzerland, by the way, instead of Munich, where they had originally wanted to hold it, because 
the leadership of German Jewry was so overwhelmingly opposed to what they called his insane scheme that they basically refused to allow anyone to rent any space to him and made all kinds of like threats against what would happen if he dared do such a thing in Germany, right? Um, so at the opening address, I want you to picture that, that Herzl sketched out for this whole, and, and if you've seen the pictures, if you haven't seen the pictures, it's worth seeing it. He insisted that it was, it was they dress for formal ballroom, women, women in gowns, men in, co in, in tails and top hats, right? The, 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 the whole thing was meant to convey um, sort of a gravity and a, um, a dignity, which was also part of Herzl's power. I mean, you've seen the pictures, right? Herzl's appearance was a, was a majestic appearance. After his address, Mordechai Ben-Ami, who was one of the delegates, described the reaction of the crowd. He says, for a few moments, the hall shook from shouts of joy, applause, cheers, and feet stomping. It felt as if the great dream of our nation of 2,000 years was now solved, and in front of us stood Mashiach Ben-David. Right? It was a three-day conference, and in that conference, Herzl stamped his, his, not just his personality, but his image in the collective consciousness of the Jewish people. Now, practically speaking, three days of keynote speeches, committee meetings, you know, passionate debates. I want you to picture acculturated Jews from Germany and France are discussing Hebrew literature with the Maskelim from the Pale of Settlement. Orthodox Jews are talking to atheists about redemptions. Nationalists are preaching to cosmopolitans about the importance of pride. I mean, like, like th this, is, this is the cultural mixing pot of the, probably the greatest power that European Jewry had seen up to this point. Right? And what emerges out of it is actually a popular movement. They do elect a president. Herzl is the first president of the World Zionist Organization, which exists today. They just had their elections. I don't know if anybody voted. Right? They just had their elections. That, that is the, the vote that just took place for the World Zionist Organization had its origins at the first Zionist Congress. It was the creation of a political organization called the Zionist Movement. Beyond ideas, beyond passionate associations and private enterprise, you now have a political association to which you can pay a membership fee, which gives you the right to vote, and it exists to this very day. It's a whole different discussion of why such an organization still exists when nominally they already succeeded in creating the Jewish state. That's actually an important discussion, but I'm just putting it on the board for you to contemplate. I don't want to go there now. Aside from the political institutions, um, perhaps the, uh, and of course the adoption of Hatikva as the national anthem, which is not a small thing, because the national anthem is a tremendously powerful rallying point. Right? And the election of Herzl, as I said, as the president of the Zionist organization. Right? Aside from that, the real outcome of the first Zionist Congress is what's known as the Basel Program. Basel, Switzerland, right? And it's going to set the course for the Zionist movement for the foreseeable future, although you'll see in the elements that there was a lot of conflict because obviously I'm telling one very narrow piece of this story. All these different elements that go into making up the Zionist movement all came, all had voice. Not everybody agreed. Like I said, you know the Jews. And um, we'll speak a little bit more next week about the competing streams and the influence they had into crafting a modern Jewish identity. But for now, the Basel program just on a basic level has four points. Number one, the promotion of appropriate means of settlement in the land of Israel of Jewish farmers, artisans, and manufacturers. This is what we call pragmatism. Just make it possible if some guy wants to move to Israel, right? get a loan fund together, 
get, get some support, meaning individuals. Notice it's, it's settlement of farmers, artisans, and manufacturers. That's, that's the pragmatism to which Herzl was opposed, remember. Right? This was a point that he lost. He wanted a grand scheme. He didn't want this guy, this guy, that guy. He wanted all the Jews, get the Kaiser to talk to the Sultan, and they're going to give us the whole pie at once. But nevertheless, that's the first. Number two, organization and uniting of the whole of Jewry by means of appropriate institutions, local and international, in accordance with the laws of each country. He wants to make Zionism the representative movement of all world Jewry. That's a big aspiration. And if you know some of the history of European Jewry or American Jewry, you know that Zionists were the minority and often a despised minority right up and through World War II. In America, people are shocked by the sort of rise of an anti-Zionist American Jewry today. You shouldn't be shocked. It's just a return to much of its roots. Right? And, and that's a discussion that I'm happy to share with you podcasts that I have on the topic. But um, So that's one is... Make it possible for individuals to go and succeed financially. Two, create an, an organization that will bind all world Jewry together into one political organization. Three, strengthening and fostering of Jewish national sentiment and consciousness. That's cultural work. You got to educate the people. I mean, like teaching Hebrew, even teaching Jews that they're a nation. Remember, we saw from Chaim Weizmann this quote about his religious teacher who saw himself as a German of Mosaic persuasion. It takes work to cultivate a national consciousness. And so that means also funds and energy devoted to it. These are the four points. So again, one, make it possible for the individual to go and succeed financially. Two, make a global political organization that will bind world Jewry together. Three, cultural political work to educate people toward a national consciousness. And four, steps toward obtaining the consent of governments in order to reach the goals of Zionism. That's classic political Zionism. We're going to go out, we're going to talk to the Kaiser, we're going to talk to the Sultan, we're going to try to get the whole thing at once and not just piecemeal it. This is known as the Basel Program, and through it, and through the First Zionist Congress, Herzl suddenly is rocketed to an international standing. Overnight, basically overnight, he found himself engaged in what we call shuttle diplomacy. He, he meets the Kaiser of Germany in Istanbul in 1898, the, the very next year, and then again in Jerusalem with the aim of convincing him to put pressure on the sultan, like I said, to, to give the Jews a, a, basically a joint stockholdership in Palestine. He fails, right? Um, but nevertheless, he's, he's standing in front of kings and he's being seen and treated as the king of the Jews. And that's, this is the, the ineffable piece here, is that, that, that he's received as the leader of a people who have not appointed him as such. And yet, everywhere he goes, Jews of almost every type feel that he looks like a king. And that's what I said. I mean, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole side to this of the aesthetics, which really, you know, can be looked at. The, 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 the sort of majestic beard, the, the, the lofty forehead, his, his bearing and nature of speech had a huge impact because it didn't strike people as these... Um, the, uh, the crouching Jew. So I see a question here from Golda. Why do world leaders give him an audience? Is it his charisma? That is definitely part of it. Remember, of course, you never just walk into the Kaiser. You've got to find the guy who knows the guy, gets the guy. And he has a tremendous personal charisma. He looks the part. And because he's working with people like Rothschild and Baron Hirsch to try, I mean, Jews have a lot of influence if they don't have a lot of power. 
but he manages to get these audiences. Um, just to give you an appreciation of the impact of his persona, the, um, in 1902, which is not long before Herzl dies, Freud mails to Herzl a copy of his sort of foundational work, The Interpretation of Dreams, right? Nominally, it's for him to review for the new free press, because Herzl's still a journalist, right? Because Freud, of course, is also in Vienna. Um, but at the end of the letter he sends along with the book, he, he expresses his high personal regard for Herzl. He says, but in any event, meaning whether you review it or not, I ask you to keep the book as a token of the high esteem which I, like so many others, have for many years regarded the poet and fighter for the human rights of our peoples. He says in 1894 he'd seen Herzl's play The New Ghetto, and it struck just such a deep chord in him, right, that he relates a dream in his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, he relates a dream that was triggered in he himself, in Freud, by the play. Right, that he says that um, the dream was constructed on a tangle of thoughts provoked by a play which I had seen called The New Ghetto. The Jewish problem, concerned about the future of one's children to whom one cannot give a country of their own, concerned about educating them in such a way that they can move freely across frontiers. Now, I want you to appreciate this as an as a example. Freud was not known as a nationalist, to say the least. Freud is, is arguably one of the archetypes of cosmopolitan Jewish culture. But there was something in the passion that Herzl was able to communicate, both in his play in the New Ghetto, and just in, he later actually, Freud writes a letter to Herzl's son, many years after Herzl's death, and says, your father is one of those men who have transformed dreams into reality. People of this sort, Garibaldi's, Herzl's, are very rare and dangerous. That, that there is something ineffable in Herzl's personality, call it charisma, call it what you will, that struck a chord which was well beyond anything that any Jewish leader had done outside of their immediate circles at this point, perhaps since... Who would you compare him to? Shabtai Tzvi. If you recall, those of us who were in the, in the semester together last semester, that Shabtai Tzvi also had this tremendous capacity to simply get in, get to the sultan, to, get to, to talk to people, that, you know, and, and, and there was some ineffable quality that people were attracted to him. I guess that's what we call charisma. So just to round Herzl's um, story out, because I can see we have... Uh, not a tremendous amount of time left, that, um, so, he wrote in his journal a few days after the Basel Conference, that, were I to sum up the Basel Conference in a word, it would be this, at Basel I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter. Remember, it's 1897. 200 delegates is impressive, but to say that at Basel he founded the Jewish state, it's insane. Perhaps in five years, Certainly in 50, everyone will know it. Now I want you to appreciate, he wrote that in 1897. 50 years later was 1947, right? And that's why, of course, Herzl's most famous statement is, if you will it, it is no dream. That, that in, in many ways, what makes Herzl the founder of modern Zionism, like I said, first of all, he was bothered by the plight of his people, but that doesn't make him unique. Second of all, it would not let him rest. He had to take action. But also, we saw Pinsker, Hess, others, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make them unique either. Right? It was his capacity to dream and to infect others with that dream, to trigger the imagination 
of the people around him, which really gave him, just think of that statement. Today, I founded the Jewish state. And next week, we'll look at the people who were opposed to him. We'll look at some of his fellow travelers. Just so you know, I want to look a little bit at Max Nordau and um, Asher Ginsburg, known as Achad Am, which will fill out for us, and maybe a little bit of A.D. Gordon, just to understand the new identity which is going to emerge out of this process. But for now, I'll, I'll end, I'll leave time for, um, uh, I'll leave time for, for a couple of questions, but just to give you the end of his story, um, obviously leaving out a lot of it, but um, in 1903, there were terrible pogroms in, in, in Kishinev, in Russia, which we'll, speak, we'll give more details about maybe next week. But those pogroms and the general state of Russian Jewry that Herzl had gone to see for himself made him actually convinced that something immediate needed to be done on the mass political scale. And so he turned to the British Empire, again, standing before kings, um, and actually got an offer from the British of what's known as the Uganda Program. Right? People may be familiar with it. The British basically offered to give a big chunk of land within Africa for the Jews to take refuge. Why? Whether that would have really happened is not so important to us. I want you to understand that, that, that the fight over the Uganda program within the Zionist movement, which is that eventually voted it down, in many ways broke his heart. Because in 1904, he was basically, and having had worked incessantly traveling the world trying to convince the Jews the leaders of the world, that this was a project which must become, come to be. In 1904, Herzl basically dies of, you could say, pneumonia. You could say of a broken heart, right? But basically, he burnt himself out in service of this dream which had lit him on fire only a few years before. Um, but on that note, and going back to this whole question of, of Herzl and his Jewish identity, I'll give you this final image. That um, a couple of years after the publication of the Jewish State, which was just a few months after the close of the First Zionist Congress, Herzl wrote a short story called The Menorah. It's not one of his better known works, but it's the story of an artist who survives an existential crisis and discovers his own Jewish identity while lighting the Hanukkah candles. Right? And, and this artist in the, in the book is a man who deep in his soul felt the need to be a Jew. And I'm sure you see where this is going. Right, here he is four months after the Basel Conference, and he's writing a short story about someone who, after an existential crisis, awoke to the need to be a Jew. And in the ending scene of the, of the short story, the artist is sitting, because the story happens, as, of course, you're lighting the candles gradually over the course of eight days, and this feeling is growing within him, and he's sitting in front of the fully lit menorah, and he says, for our friend, meaning the artist in the story, the occasion became a parable for the enkindling of a whole nation. First one candle, it's still dark and the solitary light looks gloomy. Then it finds a companion. Then another, then another. The darkness must retreat. When all the candles are ablaze, everyone must stop in amazement at what has been wrought. And no office is more blessed than that of a shamash. Right? That of the, basically, the servant of light. Right? And really, that was the role that Herzl played. And it's why I believe he's remembered as the father of the modern Zionist movement. Because whatever qualities of soul, of character, of personality, of ability he had, he put them all into service to the point where he burnt out. But his statement that the Jewish state is essential to the world and it therefore will be created actually became a reality which he never lived to see. Though you should know, he dies in 1904 and he's buried in Europe 
but his body, of course, was brought by the modern state of Israel and reinterred at Mount Herzl, of course, in 1949. So he didn't live to see his dream, but he did come to rest there. So uh, that's it for, for Herzl right now. We will pick up next week um, with the personalities, as I mentioned, probably of Achad Am and Max Nordau. And the goal is really going to be to understand what is this new Jew that arises in thought together with the idea of a Jewish homeland. I want to thank a few folks before I sign off. I want to thank the folks that give their hard-earned money for making this show happen, keeping it free and widely available. I want to invite you to join them. Go to www.jewishstory.co. Find that button in the upper right-hand corner and click on through with a little bit of per-podcast support. Put your money where your ears are, people, and help make Season 4 happen. Or send me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com, or a personal message on Facebook, and I'll happily share with you the details of how you can support in any other way. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.